This morning I wanted to talk about refuge and about faith and about our training in the precepts. And I wanted to do the ceremony of taking precepts, going for refuge, actually as a contemplation. I just ask how many people in the room consider themselves to be Buddhists. Please raise your hand. Is anybody not sure? That's okay too. Raise your hands. Okay, we've got a room full of Buddhists. So that would mean that most of us have done these ceremonies before many times. And it's important to have a look at what we're doing, why we're doing it, how we're doing it. We review what we're doing and we're training in doing things with mindfulness and clear comprehension. So I like to have a fresh look at these ceremonies and contemplate them a bit because they're very beautiful actually. And uh, as with anything that we do habitually, it can become uh, uh, a little bit empty. Empty in a not, not such a good way. There's the other type of emptiness, profound emptiness, blissful emptiness. Your meditation and your contemplation will help you to realize. If you do your study, you listen to the masters, we hear that if one attains to stream entry, first stage of enlightenment, there's no more superstitious grasping at rites and rituals. Some modern people misunderstand this. The sense of sodapanas don't grasp at rituals, therefore stream enterers don't grasp at rituals, therefore the rituals aren't important. That's not what the real practice is. Real practice is the method. So you have that, in a way, scientific bias in some respects. You know, grasp it as a method. I think the correct way to understand it is superstitious grasping at rites and rituals, thinking that the rite or the ritual or the ceremony is the thing that will get you enlightened. That's the misunderstanding that falls away. Ceremonies, on the other hand, when practiced with mindfulness and with awareness, have an important function. So, even the stream enterers that I know do lots of ceremonies. They do them mindfully. And so it's understanding how to use something as a skillful means, as a tool, to help you to continue to train your mind. And so we say these words, buddhang saranam gachami. I go for refuge to the Buddha. It's interesting that 
we say it for the second time and the third time in that ritual. I think there's a reason for this. I think Lord Buddha knew that we have a tendency to rush through things and not consider what we're doing. So even he's asking us to say it a second time, say it a third time. I think he wants us to think about this. So, buddhang saranangachami, I go to refuge for the Buddha. So I'm going to talk about these refuges and after I've talked about them a little bit, I will ask you to repeat after me as a contemplation and as a way of engaging the ceremony, hopefully with a little more understanding, a little more sincerity and enthusiasm and making the ceremony vibrant, uh, making the ceremony something which generates energy, enthusiasm, faith that we can then bring to our meditation practice. So what is Buddha? Who's the Buddha? So we know from our own experience that the mind is affected by greed, by irritation, aversion, sometimes hatred, Sometimes we don't recognize that the mind's affected by delusion because delusion deludes us. We are deluded. And it's when we train to recognize our delusion, delusion can start to fall away. But we, most of us as Buddhists, will acknowledge that there is greed, there is aversion, irritation, hatred, and there is delusion. So Lord Buddha, realize something beyond that. And then he explained how to accomplish that, how other beings can accomplish that. So having gone beyond greed, hatred and delusion, sometimes described as enlightenment, sometimes described as liberation, So what did he become enlightened to? With regards to refuge of Dhamma. Dhamma is truth, nature. So it was in seeing the truth of things as they really are, with mindfulness, clear comprehension, quite a bit of concentration, the Buddha's mind was liberated. So through seeing ultimate truth, deeper truth, that the delusion fell away. Ignorance is the reason that greed, hatred and delusion continue to function in our minds. The remedy to ignorance, ignorance, what does ignorance mean? Ignorance means not knowing. Not knowing things clearly according to their true nature. Because we don't know, we misperceive them, that's delusion. 
because we misperceive things. That's why it's possible to be greedy. That's why it's possible to have aversion, irritation, even hatred. When the mind has enough clarity and mindfulness, really sees the body as just a body arising due to conditions, changing, dying. And all those thoughts arising due to conditions, changing, ceasing. Seeing that it's not a self, what is there to be greedy about? What is there to be angry about? What is, who is there to love and who is there to hate? And so it's through seeing Dhamma, the truth, that Lord Buddha became Lord Buddha, the one who knows ultimate truth. This is not an easy accomplishment. All of you who've been meditating for some time are aware that the power behind the habit is pretty awesome actually. The various habits that we have, the things we crave for, the things we want, the things we don't want. And many times you come to meditate and you might know that various ways of thinking are deluded, unskillful, but they don't necessarily go away. You're thinking the same things or similar things. One gets a sense that these habits have some momentum. And this is, if you take what Lord Buddha said literally, samsara has no discernible beginning it does have an end for the individuals who uproot their attachment to it. Literally millions have passed lives, all of us. It's interesting, isn't it? We first begin to consider the concept of previous lives, future lives, as there's this limited personality with its perspective tries to imagine a few lives before and a couple of lives after. Lord Buddha is saying, actually it's hundreds, thousands, millions of lives. I think this is an important, myself I believe this, I don't have any doubt. Having got a bit of a whiff, a bit of a sense for the power of my habits, I don't doubt that they have quite a bit of momentum behind them. Lord Buddha liberated himself from the cycle of rebirth through letting go of his attachment to bodies, thoughts, feelings, sights, sounds, tastes. And then he describes his experience as being an experience of unshakable peace. An experience, he usually describes it in terms of negation, he describes it in terms of what isn't there, with no suffering. Or no experience of anything even subtly unsatisfactory. So what that means is his experience of enlightenment was completely satisfactory. A very satisfying experience. So when we go for refuge to the Buddha, there are many ways that we can contemplate that. 
many feelings, wholesome feelings that we can have in relationship to that. One is awe. Isn't it amazing that this being found a way out? And then that same feeling of awe you can bring inwards and understand, isn't it wonderful? Lord Buddha explained, that's my potential. Lord Buddha realized ultimate nature, his ultimate nature also, which is not self. Uh, we have to use a conventional speech. Where he realized not self. He did. And we have that potential to realize not self. And in realizing not self, be liberated from the way that we grasp at all these things, which is painful. And experience something with uh, no suffering at all. So, awe for the Buddha's incredible spiritual faculties that was so well honed and so sharp that he could see things according to their nature. In doing so, uproot <coughs> ignorance and through doing that actually destroy delusion. was destroyed in his mind. The darkness of delusion was exploded out of his mind with the light of mindfulness, concentration and wisdom to the extent that it could never affect his mind again. It was liberated from greed, hatred and delusion. And so for myself, when I think of Lord Buddha's enlightenment, I feel grateful. And gratitude is a very beautiful uh, emotion. So when we recognize the value of something and we feel grateful towards it, even love, really love the Buddha, not in a romantic way, not in an affectionate way, not in a even recognizing the conventional being that put the enormous effort into realizing that potential. For myself, I really love the Buddha's effort, the Buddha's spiritual faculties, the Buddha's wisdom, the Buddha's liberation. And allow the mind to love that. He's going to love anything. Love the Buddha's realization, love the Buddha's example, love the Buddha's qualities. It's very wholesome. Because we all love things. We all want to love. It's like training ourselves to put this faculty to love somewhere where it's going to be most helpful to us. For myself, I feel grateful towards, I feel in awe of the Buddha's realization, and I love the conventional Buddha. And uh, in a way also, that's a way of loving your ultimate potential. It's very important. So, it's putting something else in the habitual way that we think, the kind of judging, often judging our minds, judging ourselves, wanting it to be different. 
there isn't much of a sense of blessing yourself or blessing this incredible potential that you have. So in loving Buddha, in loving Dhamma, in loving Sangha, in recognizing that your nature is Dhamma, when you realize Dhamma, your liberation will be the same liberation as Buddha. It's training yourself to appreciate and recognize something incredibly valuable, wonderful, beautiful in your own mind. And so when you go to the Buddha for refuge, you're also going for refuge to your potential. Buddha is not the statue. And the Buddha isn't even his 84,000 verses of Dhamma teaching. And the Buddha wasn't his body. And the Buddha is the being that realized ultimate truth, which is above, beyond, and better than all of those things. And so when you go for refuge to Buddha, you're going for refuge to your own incredible, extraordinary, beautiful potential to be enlightened, to go completely beyond every type of suffering and experience unshakable peace and then also be a refuge to others. If you realize that, you'll be able to help a lot of people. So if you don't mind, repeat after me. Buddhang Saranangachami. I go for refuge to the Buddha. Dhammang Saranangachami. I go for refuge to the Dhamma. Sankang Saranangachami. I go for refuge to the Sangha. So I hadn't said much about the Sangha yet. Sangha is all of those wonderful beings that realized in the Buddha's footsteps what he realized. That's the monks and the nuns, the laymen and the laywomen since the time of the Buddha. Lots of devas too. So this is yet another wonderful positive affirmation. It's not that the Buddha was this fluke, only he did it because he's some kind of superhero. Millions, we don't know how many. Maybe it's tens of millions, maybe it's hundreds of millions, maybe it was billions, I don't know. But we know it was a lot. A lot of people realized the liberation that the Buddha realized. And that affirms his liberation, all of their liberation, and your potential to be liberated by practicing Dhamma. And so when we go for refuge to the Sangha, once again, just affirming that this path, the Eightfold Path, practicing, realizing the Four Noble Truths, cultivating the Eightfold Path, Four Foundations of Mindfulness, this liberates beings. It's liberated millions of beings. And as long as beings continue to practice it, it will continue to liberate beings. 
So that's a little bit more about the Dhamma, those practices, the Eightfold Path. These are descriptions of what we need to do in terms of cultivating mental faculties and developing insights. So Dhamma is realized. So the Dhamma isn't on one level. The Dhamma is 84,000 Dhamma verses, a bookcase full of teachings. In terms of what it really is, all of those teachings are pointing to, we understand that the Buddha gave these teachings to different individuals. Some of those people were enlightened after hearing one or two verses. It's not necessarily the case that you have to study hundreds and thousands of suttas. We understand that the Buddha had the miracle of teaching. He knew how to teach people in a way that they would understand and many of those people understood quickly because their spiritual faculties were right because of previous Dhamma practice. So Dhamma practice is these simple lists, the five spiritual powers, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration and wisdom, lead to the deathless, merge in the deathless. I love that list, it's so simple. And uh, you have faith, you stimulate your faith, generate your faith, it gives rise to energy appreciation, gratitude, the mind's very wholesome with those qualities. And then you apply that wholesome energy to being mindful of the object, being mindful of the various objects. Collectedness arises, there's more stillness, collectedness, spaciousness, concentration. And then you perceive things more accurately as they are, arising and ceasing, arising and ceasing. Seeing that clearly, the sense of self drops away and you experience not-self, it isn't a self. I'm deludedly grasping at it as being a self, but when I see it very clearly, it's not. And seeing it clearly, it lets go, the mind lets go of it. You experience the mind without the self-construct, self-concept, self-grasping. So Dhamma, practice, is occurring in your mind. And Dhamma realization is occurring in your mind. And all of the teachings are pointing us there. One of these wonderful phrases in the suttas, it's within this fathom-long body that liberation occurs. That doesn't mean that liberation is going to occur in your bones or in your blood. What it means is that liberation occurs within the very space that your body is. It occurs in your mind, in the center of your body. So refuge in Dhamma, these simple things, these mental faculties that become mental powers, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration and wisdom, lead to the deathless, merge in the deathless. What does that mean? That means that these five things, when cultivated, will liberate you completely. Deathless means Nibbana, a state uh, that has transcended rebirth and death. So, going for refuge to the practice, going to refuge to your potential, and going to refuge to truth. And so we'll do it again another two times, hopefully with a little more understanding. Bhuttang saranangachami Go for refuge to the Buddha. Dhammang saranangachami 
refuge to the Dhamma. Sankang Saranangachami. I go for refuge to the Sangha. And the last time we'll do it together. Buddhang Saranangachami. Dhammang Saranangachami. Sankang Saranangachami. Very good. So it's explained that a being in samsara has had to accumulate quite vast amounts of merit before meeting the Three Jewels. In a way, this is another positive affirmation because so often, uh, especially modern people, tend to feel that um, we judge our practice, we judge our life, we judge others. The modern world is a lot of critical thinking in the modern world. And it's good to become mindful of, be aware that there's already been a lot of practice done which was skillful. So you don't need teachings about how to realize your most subtle nature and your ultimate potential if you haven't been extremely generous for many, many lives. And if you haven't developed a genuine, true, deep, loving appreciation of virtue, ethical conduct, so that's already accomplished. I like to mention to people, you already accomplished millions of wholesome, skillful, generous, kind deeds. And you already trained yourselves to behave morally, ethically, responsibly, skillfully, hundreds of lives, possibly thousands of lives. I really believe that because you don't meet this teaching, you don't get this path of practice, you don't get these pointers about how to get liberated without a lot of auspicious support. So unfortunately, if what Lord Buddha says is true, more beings in hell and more beings as ghosts than there are human beings, I have a terrible feeling it's true. So with that perspective, you understand that if you're deluded, you're ignorant, and you don't know how to relate to these greedy thoughts, angry thoughts, and you act on them. That's what happens, you get frustrated. You try to find a way out of your frustration. If you try a bit more greed, a bit more aggression, a bit more anger, you're going to get in a lot of trouble. But that's what most people do. Your frustration gets to a certain point, and then you think, okay, it'll be through fulfilling a certain passion that I'll get a relief from my suffering or expressing my irritation or anger, I'll get a relief from this suffering, and of course it makes it all worse. We can't see that very clearly when there's a lot of delusion in the mind. So a lot of beings, having made mistakes, not seeing things clearly, have found themselves in a much more difficult situation than the one we're in. And so we have compassion for that, but the point that I'm making here is recognizing that where you are is okay. In fact, where you are is very good in the samsaric perspective. Because I think uh, human beings actually have a, a quite a gift for feeling sorry for ourselves. And uh, if you recognize and then if you recognize that you're uh, very fortunate and uh, things are 
it's a definitely a workable situation, then you can drop the pain of feeling sorry for yourself and stop wasting energy as well. <laughs> Waste a lot of time and energy feeling sorry for ourselves. And so here we are in Melbourne and I was told that Melbourne is the most livable city in the world. So what more could you possibly want? <laughs> but I know that that could be very depressing, can't it? Here you are in the most livable city in the world and you still feel frustrated and depressed. And <laughs> feel sorry for yourself. <laughs> well, these things are always relative. One of the ways that the devas suffer is uh, being jealous of each other. And you think about the suffering of devas, there are different types of suffering in different realms. So apparently they have these celestial mansions and it's a bit like keeping up with the Joneses. It's like, how come his celestial mansion is more beautiful than mine? Samsara, the devas suffer as well. And the deva realm is uh, teachings of the Buddha, he describes this himself. The teachings of the Buddha lead to heaven and beyond. So we're mostly interested in the beyond. But if you practice dana and you're being generous and you keep your ethical precepts and you meditate, it creates a lot of merit. And then the result of having created merit is you get born in places with more pleasure, more pleasant experience. So practice of Dhamma will lead you to heavenly rebirth, whether you want it or not. If you do it sincerely, that's where it leads. But I also encourage people to set the intention, especially at the time of death, set the intention to be reborn, but you have to do it before you die. You have to kind of put in these imprints. Uh, people kind of get a bit, uh, you know, we want to grasp, we want a guaranteed good situation in the future. I think it's more about having the aspiration and the clear intention rather than the details. So I often tell people coming out of their meditation when the mind's peaceful to set the aspiration. At the time of death, may I be reborn in a place where I can practice Buddha Dhamma. And you don't need to worry about where it is. Just have that intention very deeply in the mind at the breakup of the khandhas, the body and the mind at the moment of death. May I be reborn where I meet the Buddha's teachings and can practice Buddha Dhamma. That's all you need. And then hopefully as you're dying, Buddha, 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 the breath will stop. You can't be mindful of the breath anymore. But what you can do is you can hold buddho, synonym for mindful, aware, awake, and your refuge. Buddho, buddho, buddho. If you can hold on to that as you're dying. And you've already set your intention. You know, it's a bit late then to be worrying about where you're going to be reborn, actually. Because uh, the life that you've lived before you die is what's going to affect the rebirth more. The, the last thoughts are important. Tanajan and I've explained to him about, asked him about this and he explained that two things are most important. The, the level that your mind has habitually been on throughout its life. So if you've been hanging out mostly in an animal realm, if you haven't been strict with your precepts and you've uh, acted
acted on passions and irritations and compulsively, it's very difficult to get a human rebirth. If you've really tried to be ethical, maintain some virtue, practice some restraints and patience and forgiveness, incline the mind towards metta, compassion, then quite likely to be born as a human. And then, but it's this making merit and then determining in a particular way. See, the mind becomes like what it attends to and the intention with which you do things affects the result. So many, many people making offerings in, in Thailand, modern-day Thailand, and with the wish to be more rich. And so that's dangerous because you can be reborn in a situation where you might well be rich, but you might not have virtuous friends or ethical friends, and you might use that situation to make a whole bunch of bad karma and go to hell after that. So be very careful. There's this uh, noble wealth, Aryasat, they say in Thai, Aryasat. Tanajanan talks about it a lot, that we aim to accumulate the noble wealth. That means your faith, thousands and millions of moments of mindfulness, collectedness, skillful types of collectedness, this kind of moments and periods of time where the mind is bright and full of merit, that's a noble wealth, that can go with you. Ajahnan explains no flood, no fire, no storm, no famine can take that away from you, no war can take away the merit that you've accumulated. So that's what we need when we're dying. We need to have accumulated quite a lot of good karma and uh, skillful habits, and then set the intention, especially when we take days of practice like this, you know, when we come out of a peaceful mind state, okay, I recognize that practicing Buddha Dhamma is the most precious thing, most valuable thing, I don't want to get more deluded, I want to be less deluded, so may I practice in every life until I realize liberation, and at the time of death, may I be reborn in a place where I can practice. So. I don't know where that is, that if this world degenerates more and more, it might be a heaven realm. There might be certain heaven realms where devas are practicing Dhamma. Or it might be another human world where there could be a teaching Buddha teaching right now in another world in the... Buddha describes the samsara as a, or the universes as ananta jagawan unending, unending universe, never-ending universe. So within that never-ending universe there are other worlds, other form worlds, other human worlds. So the condition that gives rise to human birth is having kept five precepts. And, so, and the condition of meeting the Buddha's teaching is having practiced Buddha's teaching not necessarily under previous Buddhas. It might be the case that in previous lives you were practicing sila in a different religion with a different name, but you were practicing what the Buddha taught, being generous, being ethical, being virtuous. And you might have practiced samatha, you practiced calming meditation. So practicing dana, sila and bhavana 
in enough lives that you finally meet the Buddha's teaching. And then he says, on top of this dana, sila and bhavana, you need to apply skillful reflection, wise contemplation. That was his insight uh, when he was practicing the austerities in the cave. He realized that the extreme of patient endurance with painful feelings, racking feelings, wasn't leading onwards. He remembered the time that he had attained to a jhana under a rose apple tree as a young prince. And he realized, or he had the insight, or he wondered, could I combine a certain amount of collectedness, concentration, focus with wise contemplation? Is that the middle way? And he had the realization that it was. And then he wandered down, he had a bath, Sujata and her milkmaids offered him some milk rice. He was offered eight bundles of kusagrash grass, so he sat under the Bodhi tree. He made the resolution, I'm not getting up, let my blood dry up. I'm not getting up until I get enlightened. Fortunately for us, he did. But what he did under that Bodhi tree was contemplate certain amount of collectedness and then he directed his contemplation and actually because of his incredible accumulated virtue he was able to look at hundreds and thousands of past lives and in seeing that he saw arising ceasing arising ceasing arising ceasing arising ceasing and he saw karma being born in happy destinations due to having produced merit being born in unhappy destinations having produced bad karma he saw that, had you know, inevitable insight. You imagine that you're really paying attention to it and you really have the faculties to see birth, aging, death, birth, aging, death, birth, aging, death, birth, aging, death, with a very focused mind, not so focused that it's just delighting in an absorption and the bliss of samadhi, but focused with reflection, seeing. How could any one of those be a permanent self? The whole thing is changing. And he's seeing it more and more clearly. And he saw that it was because of the ignorance as to the impermanent nature that there was grasping, clinging, upadana in Pali, attachment and clinging. And he also understood that it was because of grasping at the pleasure that was available in psychic existence, fed, nourished, the next rebirth. But then with that incredible clarity, he was able to see that there's much more suffering than there is pleasure. And he was able to see it's not worth it. It's a bad deal. And then seeing the danger in samsara. Seeing that grasping at the hope for pleasure meant that all this pain and aging and death and rebirth came again and again and again and again. He's like, this isn't worth it. Seeing that, letting go of the deluded attachment, seeing that it hurts, let go. He was able to let go. Seeing it clearly as impermanent, impermanent, impermanent. It's not self. It was dukkha, letting go. And then experiencing the mind which knows impermanence, knows dukkha, knows not self but isn't a self. So that's sometimes referred to as the Nibbana Dhatu, enlightenment element, Buddha nature. 
So that's our potential when the Buddha realized it through <coughs> practicing this combination, the middle way, uh, focused recollection, focused contemplation with a certain amount of uh, concentration, investigating, seeing things clearly as they are and being liberated through seeing things clearly as they are. So the other part of the ceremony that we usually do, of course, is taking these precepts. So we take them with understanding. These root defilements, greed, hatred and delusion, have to be weakened. Even if you understand the teachings, you have the teachings, you have the methods, you know the teachers, if the power of greed and if the power of hatred is still powerful in your mind, not possible to realize. It's the weight of the kilays are kind of holding the mind down and binding the mind to samsara. So those things need to be weakened to a significant degree through this training. That's what makes it possible for the mind to be liberated. A large part of what makes it possible is having restrained ourselves from doing greedy things, angry things, hateful things, and then restrain straining ourselves from activities that increase and feed delusion. So that's what these precepts are for. It's not like some judgmental God saying, you're not allowed to have any fun. You can't do this and this and this and this, otherwise I'll punish you. I don't think any gods think like that anyway, by the way. <laughs> Misinterpretation. What Lord Buddha is saying is that if you kill beings, your own life will be shortened. This is karma. You will cause pain. Beings cherish life. They don't want to die. When you cause The thing that can cause a being the most trauma is killing it. So if you kill beings, there's an enormous amount of trauma occurring in their mind. And then on top of it, you're decreasing your own future lifespan. You're going to be born young. Sorry, you're going to die young. So this is dangerous. Suppose you finally meet the Buddha Dharma, you're finally practicing and <laughs> car crash. You know, or you get sent to war. That happens a lot in samsara. The women are burdened with having babies, not having enough time to practice, too many kids, and the husband gets sent to war. <laughs> die get sent and make a lot of bad karma as well. So in this life, if you've been fortunate enough not to have too many babies, and if you haven't been sent to war yet, <laughs> you've got a good opportunity. That's what happens, isn't it? You look back at medieval history and even recent history, even now. So panatipata veramani sikapadangsamatiyami, we're going to go through that again, but we understand that Lord Buddha, out of compassion, it makes it really <coughs> obvious to us, because he cares. He doesn't want you to make karma with hatred. It's not possible to kill a being, even if you're hungry and you need to eat, it's not possible to kill a being without a moment of hatred. When you kill it, there is a moment of hatred. You can't kill another being without that. And people deny this. People justify it in various ways, but basically if you're killing beings, there's a moment of hate involved. And that's very bad karma. That means that 
a hateful being is going to pop up in your future and kill you. That's not a good thing. So we avoid it at all costs. Obviously, the occasional insect, no need to be incredibly paranoid about that, but to be, apparently the Dalai Lama kills mosquitoes, so. <laughs> we don't, in Thailand we don't, we have to blow them away. <laughs> Train ourselves not to kill them, we have to blow them away. So it's an important practice, it's taking it seriously, I undertake the precept not to kill any beings, not to take life, it actually forces you to practice more patience, more compassion, and just, okay, the mosquito wants to live, you know, ants want to live, the cockroach wants to live. And I know people, people often ask monks, if my house is infested with cockroaches, what do I do? Okay, sometimes you might have to take on some karma, but it's a genuinely good practice, isn't it, to mindfully, carefully catch the spider and take it outside. There's moments of Passion and metta, <laughs> consideration involved in that, in that process. I said, beautiful. So understanding, I'd like to say that precept, and if you could repeat it after me, but understand that this is an instruction to help restrain us from making karma with hatred, and as an investment in our future long life, so that when we meet Buddha Dhamma, we can have a long life to practice it. Anatipata vera manisika padasamatiami. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking the life of any living creature. Okay, the next one, Adinadana, is the not stealing and not taking that which is not given is how it's better described. So if you steal things, you will be stolen from. And uh, motivated by greed usually. So once again, I'm trying to restrain this greed energy, understanding that greed for pleasant experience is what thrusts us into birth after birth after birth. And we're a bit tired of that. We want something better. So, I'm going to try to be very scrupulous. Might be a bit tricky at tax return time. If you really want to be liberated, if enlightenment is the most important thing to you, if by law you're supposed to give it, I, I would give it. Only money. It's an interesting comment, actually. It's only money. How many people think it's only money? It's money. <laughs> no, it's only money. <laughs> if you don't have enough, it's, it's very serious, isn't it? It can be difficult. But if you understand that your virtue and your ultimate nature that you want to realize is much more valuable than money, you won't do sleazy, shady, crooked things in order to get it. <coughs> Even little sneaky things. Another thing about it is if you give things happily, give things generously, okay, can you do that? Can you 
when it comes to tax return time, as I say, I happily give this to the government. And okay, you might not want to support wars and you might not want to support other things, but it's like, okay, I give this to the hospital, I give this to the daycare, I give this, you know. Just think of the ways that you approve of the government spending your tax money and then happily give it, because then it's like a transformative dana. Okay, I have to give it, I'm going to find a way to happily give it. ways to relate to those things, so that we don't have to resent things. But, uh, practice of dana, and then this practice of not taking what isn't given is a... They lead on from each other. Not taking, from, not taking that which is not given is a kind of a basic foundation. You're not going to fall into a loss and then giving a portion of what you have, and then you're getting a profit. Okay, so you're going to be protecting yourself so that wherever you turn up in samsara, you have uh, good opportunities. So those of us who've been to Bihar, so a number of people in the room have actually been on pilgrimage with either myself or Ajahn Pavaro. We've seen many poor people, many of them just have the clothes that they're wearing, many of them sleeping on the streets, many of them without shoes, very skinny, skin and bones, not much radiance or clarity in their eyes, many millions of beings experiencing this. One friend asked Ajahn Anand, what's the cause for these beings, why did they get born here? Ajahn Anand said they stole or they were very stingy with what they had. So we can see the results, taking what isn't given, or being stingy. If you have something and you don't share it, you have kind of a beggar's mind state. If you make a lot of karma with a beggar's mind state, guess where you're going? Next life. So we embrace these precepts, understanding that they're keeping us relatively safe within samsara, so that we can work at liberating ourselves from it. So if we could take that precept with our understanding. Atinatana Ramani Sikapadam Samadhyami. I undertake the precept to restrain from taking that which is not given. The next one, Mutawada. Sometimes get the order wrong. Okay, thank you. The order doesn't matter that much. What matters is that you keep them. Kami Sumichatara, sexual responsibility. I undertake the precept to restrain from sexual misconduct. So, sexual passion, pretty powerful phenomena. Lord Buddha said, if there were two powers as powerful as sexual passion, it would be impossible to be liberated from samsara. 
But since there's only one chilesa as powerful as sexual passion, <laughs> it is possible. But that says something about this force. Remembering the Buddha's insight under the Bodhi tree, grasping at the pleasure that is available within conditioned existence, that's what binds people to the ground of rebirth. You want more of that pleasure. It's important to understand that there's a certain part of the mind which is never going to feel that it's had enough of that pleasure. It's addictive, it's intoxicating, it's fleeting, it's temporary. But the thing about anything which is addictive, you want more. And the Lord Buddha explains there is no river that floods like craving. A craving in the human mind floods more than any river. So that's another very powerful metaphor. So just so that you understand, you know, I have to be honest, if I, I've been a celibate monk for 20 years. And uh, I think when I'm very grateful for the monastic container because it just doesn't give you any room to wriggle. You uh, have to keep the most strict standard of celibacy. And uh, I find that very helpful because I have a terrible suspicion that if I was a layman, I might struggle with this precept. Knowing my artist's nature and greedy character. But I also, I also aware that I must have been fairly moderate and fairly well behaved or I wouldn't have had the merit to become a monk. <laughs> but just seeing what goes on in my mind in moments. That uh, fascinating promise, you can lose yourself in some reckless abandon, get lost in some pleasure. That's it, isn't it? It's like a temporary response wanting to get away from some suffering, okay? dive into sexual passion, what's that like? Fall in love, have an affair. You just need to read the newspaper and you see how many people got murdered by their partners <laughs> or their, uh, when they decided to do that as an experiment. Apparently Thailand, it's a little bit rude, I'm not sure if I should say it, but anyway, we're having a contemplation about samsara. Thailand has the best microsurgeons that have been trained to sew penises back on. Because Thai women are somewhat renowned for chopping it off when he's asleep. And the really upset ones are sometimes fed it to a dog quickly, flushed it down a toilet. I've even heard they've been put in blenders. <laughs> anyway, since we're having a contemplation about samsara and what's possible in samsara and the way these precepts can protect us from painful consequences. Another thing is, another thing is that part of the mind which thinks it can get away with it and have a little bit of pleasure on the side, there might be that. Maybe everybody in this room has kept their five precepts perfectly. I hope so. But in case some of you didn't, or in case some of you think of breaking it, that part of the mind that thinks as long as they don't know. Okay, I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, but so I won't tell them. 
oh dear. Do you want somebody to betray you in the future and not tell you? Does anybody want that? Do you want the person who you trust most, uh, who you share most with, to start doing things behind your back without telling you? And the problem is, truth has this tendency to make itself known at some point. So the best kept secrets. There's a Jewish saying, I think, if you want someone to keep a secret, tell a dead person. When you deceive your partners, your friends, you deceive yourself as well. So it's not just this area of, of uh, being restrained with the greed and the passion that binds you to rebirth. It's, it's not justifying it. There's this thing about these precepts. The Buddha says, don't do it. It's, uh, it's very clear. Sexual contact with one person who, I hope, ideally, you care for. You have an interest in their well-being which is beyond sexual gratification. I think that's what it's pointing to. And I actually think, you know, plenty of people have told me that after a few years they get bored and they do think of having affairs or whatever, and I actually think it's part of the program. You're supposed to get bored. And when you get bored, you're not supposed to try to find another way to make it interesting with someone else and get reborn into it all again. You get bored with having a lot of sex. What that means is you suddenly have spare time and energy to meditate. <laughs> How wonderful. I think that's part of the deal. That's the program. It's like, okay, it was, it was romantic, it was fun, a lot of energy into it for a certain amount of time, and then it kind of cooled down a bit. And great. Let it cool down within a container. And then, this we're talking about, and as we're going to explore a bit later today, is the kind of pleasure that you can experience in meditation is superior, actually. So if you are diligent with your meditation, you can experience serenity, tranquility, rapture and bliss, which is of a pure quality. And that that uh, sexual passion, which is a kind of a more dirty, in terms of what it does to the mind, it kind of darkens the mind, and afterwards the mind is dull. And then it feeds the passion so that even you've just expressed that energy, within, after not very long you want to do it again. So it's never satisfied in some respects. But the mental pleasure that comes from uh, skillful meditation upon a foundation of having been generous and restrained, that mental pleasure is um, deeply nourishing to the mind. And I suppose the mind gets attached to it, but it's a wholesome attachment. So you understand that attachment to your meditation practice is part of that raft that's going to help you cross samsara. So you have to attach to the skillful, the wholesome. You have to attach to something not yet capable of letting go of all of your attachments, so you're attached to the wholesome and the skillful, the beautiful. So the pleasure that comes from meditation, inevitably we get a bit attached to it, and then there's the pain of wanting more, craving for 
explicit meditation, but to work with that. And so, out of compassion for yourself, not wanting to make, that's another thing, isn't it? If, you, if one does break precepts in this area, I think it does affect one's self-respect and dignity. So, on one level you can justify it. It's normal. And passions, nature, the way human beings are, whatever. But the fact is, if a person is promiscuous or sexually compulsive, they tend not to have much self-respect, not much dignity. They don't like themselves very much. So as a gift to yourself for your own self-respect, dignity, in recognizing your deeper potential to experience a purer and more serene, more beautiful type of pleasure, and then also in not wanting to hurt the feelings of others and in not wanting to have your own feelings hurt in the future, we kind of embrace this training as a way to evolve sexual passion, contain it and evolve it. Sometimes this is a word called sublimation. You're taking something, a lot of people think you shouldn't repress, you shouldn't repress. It's a very clumsy understanding that the sexual energy, you either repress it or you express it. There's nothing else. This is very clumsy and limited understanding. The contemplatives in every tradition understand that if you mindful of it, practice patience with it, train the mind to lift this energy from the base chakras into the heart chakras, from the heart chakras into the crown chakras, then you that very energy which gets expressed with loving passion with one person or several people can become boundless loving kindness for all beings still in space. So it's not the matter that it's not the case that if you don't express your sexual passion that you're going to become some repressed, sick, deviant that fantasizes in unskillful ways. <laughs> you allow that energy with patient endurance and with contemplation and with applying yourself at new habits, more skillful habits, that energy comes up into the heart chakra and it's possible to love all beings with impartiality rather than a romantic infatuation with just the one that you think is beautiful or handsome or sexy. So you don't need to worry that by not expressing this that you'll become a deviant. You can uh, have confidence, I believe, that through skillful restraint you're allowing a certain amount of energy to build up in the mind. That's a good thing. If that energy can be cultivated, channeled, refined, developed, and then you'll experience very blissful, boundless, noble mind states. So hopefully with a little more understanding, take that precept. Kame sumichachara oe ramanisikapadam samadhyami Undertake the precept to refrain from a sexual misconduct. Or a different way to say it, I undertake the precept to be sexually responsible. Okay. Next one is Musawada. I undertake the precept to refrain from lying. 
false, harmful speech. This is very important. One of the things for frequent meditators, one of the things that you will notice, I would assume, is the way your speech affects your meditation. You can quite see that quite directly. Come to these meditation retreats, or do meditation retreats, or even you meditate at the end of the day, and then uh, if you said something that was unskillful, harsh, gossiped about somebody, or you know, there's the part of the mind that will justify why she was wrong, why he was wrong, why I'm right saying what I said, and why they really are, bet, 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 you know, that angry, judgmental energy. But there's the more sensitive part of the mind that wishes it didn't say that, actually. It's kind of, uh, wasn't very nice. So there is that in the mind that recognizes when we've acted on our irritation, our aversion, our hatred, our impatience. And also when you've told an untruth. Now, truthfulness, this precept, we aspire to realize ultimate truth. We aspire to understand the nature of the world, the nature of our bodies, the nature of our minds, so that we can be liberated from delusion. You understand that the Buddha, meeting the Buddha, and meeting the Buddha's teachings in samsara is a difficult thing. It's not an easy thing. It's the result of, I believe, having practiced a great deal of truthfulness and having restrained from telling lies, in part, a very significant part. You're meeting, especially the people who have met Ajahn Chah's teachings and the lineage of Lumpur Man, I think you have a very good truthfulness, Bharami. Satcha Tamma, Satcha Tamma, the the truth of Dhamma. Satcha Bharami, truthfulness Bharami. We need to have quite a lot of this Satcha Bharami, I believe, to meet Satcha Tamma. True teachings, true wisdom teachings. So, having met them, please be really careful because deceiving yourself and deceiving others, that makes the karma where you could be separated from wisdom teachings, teachings about the truth. And so even in the area of white lies, we have to be careful because you look at, and even in the time of the Buddha, there's all these different teachers teaching different things. And so, and in looking at Thailand now, there's ways that the Buddha said about his own teachings that they won't, they won't disappear overnight. He said they will change slowly and they'll still be called the Buddha's teachings, but they won't be what he taught. So that's a bit scary. So if the Buddha Sasana does last 5,000 years, as some people believe it will, what people understand the Buddha's teachings to be will have changed from what the Buddha taught. And so, when you have the good karma to meet the teachings of contemporary arahants, which I think we have met when you meet Ajahn Chah's teachings, some of his disciples' teachings, then talking about those practices which lead to your liberation, the wisdom teaching of the purest and most uh, useful for your samsaric situation, how to get liberated, 
So you've been, you must have been immaculate with truthfulness in the past. There's really no other way that you meet the uh, purest teachings on the truth without that. Believe in karma and things being dependently co-arisen as we do, Buddhists. So now we have to protect that. Because we're living in a time where virtue is degenerating and where other people's standards around these things are much more wishy-washy or even or even <coughs> poor. So we understand that because we want to continue to meet wisdom teachings about truth, don't want to make any karma with deception, deceiving yourself or others, because in the future, suppose you meet a charismatic teacher which is teaching things which sound true, but if he's off a bit, and then you really have a lot of faith, then we can see what happens with suicide bombers. If you really believe that you get to live in a heaven realm, because you blew yourself and a few other people up as an offering to God, you might believe that, you might even die with a rapturous mind state if you really believe it, but unfortunately I think not a few, just a few moments after that death, I think you would find that you're not in a heaven realm. So, what people present to us as the truth, and the kind of wisdom teachers, the wisdom teachings and teachers that we meet, will depend upon how much we have deceived, or not. So when it comes to maintaining this precept as purely as possible, just remember, I really respect truth, I really love truth, I really recognize it in my own practice when I see things truthfully, I suffer less, I want to be liberated by the truth. Because of that, I'm going to be really careful not to tell lies. And with the harsh speech and harmful speech, by just seeing you meditate more and more how it affects your own mind. When you have harshness, this anger, hatred energy, when you make karma with it, your mind is hard, it's contracted, it's hot. And coming back to the self-respect, the dignity. If you don't gossip a lot, and if you don't have a lot of harsh speech, you come to meditate, the mind feels okay already. There's nothing pressing on it that to feel bad about. And so the meditation will deepen more quickly, more easily. But if you come to your cushion and as we've been saying, not very nice things, sarcastic things and uh, hurtful things, nasty things, and you come and sit, then it's like, oh, it's not an easy mind to sit with if you don't like yourself, you don't like what you did with your speech. So then that also comes in the area of it's not just what you say, it's what you allow yourself to listen to. So in terms of the kind of entertainment that you consume. So a lot of comedians, a lot of Jokes are usually at other people's expenses, aren't they? And so this affects that, if you like to watch comedians and kind of laughing at other people. And that's not necessarily very wholesome. And so giving some attention to the kind of entertainment that you consume. Are we listening to skillful speech? And, uh, or are we listening to harsh, harmful, gossipy, sarcastic speech? and try to be restrained, because it's not just what you say, it's also what you ingest. What you give attention to will affect what you do yourself. So, being showing some discretion uh, with entertainment, and also through association. These Buddhas 
The sutta that was taught to radiant female deva in Jetavana came down and said, Lord Buddha, devas are interested in happiness as well. What practices bring the highest blessings? The first thing he said, don't associate with fools. The very first thing he said. Associate with the wise. <coughs> this brings the highest blessing. So in terms of what's the television are you watching, are you associating with fools? Possibly. Associate with the wise. What could you be doing instead? Listen to a Dhamma talk, read a Dhamma book. So we take that precept. Musawadao eramani sikapadam samadhyami Take the precept to refrain from lying, harsh speech, gossip, or harmful speech. Good. The last one intoxication. Sura Maria Majapamadatana. Sajananan, he gets, we lived with him for a few years and and he gets these different crowds of people coming into the monastery on different occasions. And so for the Thai New Year, people will come to make a lot of merit. It's occurring now, actually, Songkran in Thailand. Three days, people throwing water on each other and, and drinking quite a bit. A lot of people. A lot of road deaths, unfortunately, this time of year. Yep. So uh, Ajahnan often says to the, that group of people, he says, you guys are already drunk with your property, with your partners, with your children, with your thoughts about the past, with your thoughts about your future, with your worries. I said, why would you do anything else to make your mind more drunk than it already is? Please be moderate in this area. <laughs> and so the mind is intoxicated already with delusion, greed, hatred, and delusion. And if you add drugs and alcohol to it, it darkens it further. So if you understand with our current spiritual faculties that we're in a darkened room and we have a little flashlight, okay? That's where we are now and the Ajahns are saying there's a path there, out the door there, okay? But if your batteries go flat and the room becomes darker, the chances of finding that door are going to be much less. So this is what drinking does. It takes your clouded mindfulness and makes it muddy mindfulness, murky mindfulness. And uh, I have an example, one student and friend who used to drink quite a bit of wine. And uh, he gave it up at one point. Actually, I'd been encouraging him for a couple of years and I actually told him, I'm no longer going to encourage you unless you keep this precept strictly because there's no point. And he's like, what? Oh, yeah, you heard me. You don't, ha you don't have to keep giving quality attention to people if they don't deserve the attention. So that was a bit of harsh feedback. It was like, uh, but it was after a few years of explaining why to keep this precept. And he did. He kept the precept and he noticed that it, it made a huge difference to the clarity in the mind. And then he, 
he had one drink and he noticed that it was about a month before his mind re-established the same kind of clarity it had before the drink. So this is the kind of thing that you'll only know if you're really strict with it. And it's easy to justify. A half a glass of wine is medicine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who stops at half a glass? Come on. If you have the half a glass, you have the whole glass, you have the whole glass, you have two glasses. But people still say that, yes, but a half a glass is medicine. Great. <laughs> too much medicine kills people. It's called overdose. <laughs> if you really respect the Buddha's teaching, you'll even give up the half a glass. For those of you who actually stop at half a glass, <laughs> don't deceive yourself. Don't delude yourself. Be truthful to yourself, please. So he'd had a, a lifetime of decades of drinking, and then when he really meditated daily, kept his precepts, took a few months, and he noticed feelings of rapture, feelings of bliss, feelings of tranquility arising in the mind outside of the meditation session. Now, this is very interesting. This is something that people don't realize, but virtue is a thing. These precepts, it's not just about all these things you can't do, shouldn't do. It's that when you don't do these things, you protect, nourish, support a palpable, beautiful quality in your own heart. When you keep the precepts, you have virtue. Virtue is a beautiful thing. And so when you have virtue, you can feel what it's like to have virtue, and you can feel what it's like when you did something to tarnish your virtue. And, uh, and you train in this, you're really strict with the precepts, just as an experiment. What's it like when you really keep them strictly? Is there more happiness and contentment in the mind? Give it a good chunk of time. Okay, I'm going to trust the Buddha. <coughs> Buddha had compassion. He's teaching about how to go to heaven and beyond. He's talking about having a more subtle, more rewarding pleasure and happiness, which is deeper. Maybe he knew what he was talking about. Rather than kind of uh, justify or allow your lasers to tell you what the Buddha really meant. Maybe take what the Buddha said literally. He meant what he meant. Don't drink at all. And uh, not to mention amphetamines and other things that affect the mind. And it's not that there isn't pleasure, there is. But it's harmful. And you understand that mindfulness is a subtle quality. You understand there's a beautiful orchid that you're trying to grow in a hothouse. And it's growing very well. But it needs that hothouse and it needs a certain amount of moisture. You take it out of the hothouse and put it in the full sun, it shrivels. So it's like you can see the precepts as being a bit like that, that they keep the mind within a container that this subtle quality of mindfulness can get clearer and uh, stronger. But if you break the precepts, you, these strong energies of greed or hatred and things which delude the mind come in and kind of smash the mindfulness and you have to start again. But the thing is, if you can keep them strictly for a long period of time, the momentum of the virtue and the momentum of the mindfulness, the virtue gets more palpable, more established, the mindfulness gets clearer. And then you know for yourself, there's that phrase we often say, to be experienced individually by the wise. 
you know for yourself that when you keep the precepts more strictly, you'll feel more contentment, more well-being, your mindfulness is better and your meditation is deeper. And then it becomes obvious, why would I do something that harms that so that I could have a, a lesser quality pleasure for a few moments or relieve myself from, for, from some irritation? Why would I swap the deep well-being that I have, the foundation for blissful mind states, why would I swap that for something else? So we take that precept. Surap Maryama Japamadatana Weramani Sikapadam Samadhyami I undertake the precept to refrain from intoxicating drink and drugs that leads to heedlessness. Uh, another phrase of the Buddha, heedfulness is the path to the deathless. The heedless are likened to the dead. And what that means is if you're heedless, you're going to die and die and die and die and die and die. No end of this rebirth business. But if you are heedful, you have your path out. And that your light is going to get brighter and brighter. The path gets clearer and clearer. So, that's the morning reflection on the refuge and the precept, the training why we undertake it, how we undertake it, how we relate to it.